0: Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM I'm Alexandra Comas. With me today is Samuel Gregg, author of the new book The Next American Economy Nation, State and Market in an Uncertain World Samuel Gregg is a distinguished fellow in political economy at the American Institute for Economic Research and a research fellow at the Acton Institute um,
1: Good morning, thank you for having me on
0: Yes, th- thanks for speaking with us I was I was reading your book, and the first question I had was, when did the free market economic model in America first start to face so much opposition on the domestic scale?
1: Well, there's always been debates about free markets and free trade in the United States that go right back to the founding.
0: Uh,
1: and I think in more recent times, we tend to associate this debate about free markets And we associated with the rise of Donald Trump from about 2015 onwards, as well as the emergence of what might be called economic nationalism during that decade. But I think if you can go back further, I think you can really go back further to basically the early 1990s, when you saw on the right Pat Buchanan challenge a sitting American president of the same party the nomination of the Republican Party in 1992. So remember, Pat Buchanan in 1992 ran against George H.W. Bush for the Republican nomination on a platform of protectionism, more government intervention in the economy, and a general skepticism about economic globalization and abroad and market liberalization at home. So those, I think, that, that is the period in which we first saw this start to emerge. And remember, that insurgency campaign by Pat Buchanan, which was very much a program of economic nationalism that he was advocating, that is what really, I think, derailed George H. W. Bush's attempt at getting re-elected president. So that has been a movement on the political right for a while. And of course, I think we see this accelerate and become much more manifest with the financial crisis of 2008, because for better or worse, that crisis was blamed on free markets. Now, I happen to think that's a mistaken diagnosis of the financial crisis. I think the financial crisis had a lot more to do with bad monetary policy, as well as a lot of very foolish government interventions into the economy. But the narrative that got established was that this was essentially a fault with markets. So that is, I think, where it also started to re- attract more attention and more consensus on the left, but also on the right. So the current debates we're having now, I think they go back to 2015, they go back to the 2008 financial crisis, and they even go further back to the 1992 presidential campaign.
0: That's fascinating. So could you, could you elaborate a bit more on what set the, the stage for the 2008 financial crisis?
1: Well, the financial crisis of 2008, which I I talk about in my book at some length, uh, towards the beginning, because I think it's very important to understand, the financial crisis uh, was an event that, I think, as I mentioned, was driven by a couple of things. One was excessively low interest rates on the part of the Federal Reserve for too long, a second was government uh, interference in the mortgage industry in the form of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac i think it also had to do with some very bad regulations that incentivized people working on Wall Street to behave very badly so that those comb- that combination of those particular factors i think is what really drove the financial crisis which started unfolding in late 2007 before uh, really having done very serious effects towards the end of 2008. And it raised a crisis of confidence among many people that free markets, economic globalization, deregulation, etc., were the way forward, that they were the only way forward for the United States. Now, what's interesting about that combination of factors is that they don't have anything to do with markets per se. Markets are not what led to... The government interfering with the mortgage market. Markets are not what led to regulators implementing different forms of regulation that incentivized people working on Wall Street to take excessive risk. So, so I think the 2008 financial crisis, if you're asking me, if someone asked me, is this a market-generated crisis or a government-generated crisis, I would say it's mostly a, ge- a government-generated crisis. But, in some respects, unfortunately, the facts don't matter, because the narrative that got established right after the financial crisis was that we needed more government intervention. We needed more regulation to make sure that this didn't happen again. So I think those are the those were the causes of the financial crisis, and the narrative that got established to explain the financial crisis was one of government intervention needs to return. On a scale, perhaps even bigger than we've seen before.
0: So this is Radio Free Hillsdale, one hundred one point seven FM. I'm Alexandra Comis, and I'm talking with Samuel Gregg. Your book mentions that um, there was a certain moralistic aspect to the free market, where a free market could actually help be conducive to increase um, increase standards for morality in a society. Can you elaborate on that?
1: Well, one of the things about markets in general, and let's call it another expression, commercial society, is that markets and commercial societies are very demanding on the moral, cultural side of life. What do I mean by that? Well, in the conditions of a market, there's more or less continual economic turmoil. There's businesses growing, emerging, new products being created and sold and consumers buy them. At the same time, that also implies that some businesses go out of business because people don't like their products anymore. Uh, It also implies technological change, which can mean massive changes in things like the composition of the workforce or the types of skills and talents that are necessary in a given economy at a different given point in time and of course a market economy implies competition endless competition competition for new markets competition in the realm of ideas competition in what consumer goods and products are being produced competition is something humans do but something that is also wearing on us because when you're in a market economy You are always under pressure. You're always under pressure to perform better, to work harder, to narrow your costs, to narrow your, to deal with the fact that your profit margins are shrinking. So that involves an enormous economic pressure, but also a cultural and even political pressure on society. So what this means is that if you're going to be living in the conditions of a market where you have immense competitive pressures going on all the time, and not just competition from at home, but you also have competition coming from abroad, that's very wearing on people. And so to that end, if you're going to live in that type of economy, you need to have all sorts of moral cultural resources that enable you to basically keep your head about you and not lose perspective and not lose sight of things and also help you to be a good person. Now, in one sense, commercial societies generate their own sets of virtues. You have to be prudent. You have to be willing to take risk. You have to be courageous. Uh, You have to exercise your creativity creativity and your creative intelligence all the time. And those are all good things. There's there's virtue to be found in all those things. But at the same time, commercial societies need other sets of let's call them non-market virtues. You need classical virtues, the types of classical virtues that we associate with the world of Greece and Rome. You also need particular religious virtues, particularly the religious virtues that are expressed in the Jewish and Christian religions. You need all these different sources. And what's interesting, I think, is that Adam Smith, who I think is rightly regarded as, let's call it the intellectual architect of the case for the free market and commercial society, is really the one who put everything together in 1776 in his Wealth of Nations, he makes it very clear in his book, his other great book, The Theory of Moral Sentiments, that commercial societies need this trinity of virtues, commercial virtues, classical virtues, but also distinctly religious virtues. And that's the challenge, I think, in in terms of markets today. We need free markets, but we also need this particular type of moral culture that goes along with it. Because if the case for markets is more stuff produced more efficiently, more effectively over time, that's not going to be convincing to large segments of people because people are on one level. We are material beings. We need material things to exist and also to excel. But we're not purely material beings. We're also beings that long for other things as well. So living in the conditions of a market requires you to have certain virtues. Markets demand certain virtues, but markets also require other sources of moral knowledge if they're to function over a long period of time. So if you have markets that are functioning very well, but a moral culture that is rapidly declining, you can end up in a very difficult situation.
0: Fascinating. Well, in your book, you mentioned how China's involvement in the world economy is on the increase. And with, with your talk about classical virtues and market virtues, how does, how does this interplay work between the American view of these virtues and the Chinese one?
1: Well, thanks for that. That's that question, because obviously China is on a lot of people's minds right now. It's on people's minds because the Chinese economy has obviously grown considerably since 1978 when China engaged in a limited opening to markets. And let's be clear, it wasn't in a full-throttled full embrace of free markets. It was a limited opening, particularly in the area of trade. And what goes along with that in China, of course, is what you have is essentially let's, is a type of managed capitalism. And by that I mean you have in China a situation where the the biggest economic player in China is not private enterprise. It's the Chinese Communist Party, the Chinese government, and uh, the Chinese military. And that has only accelerated over the past 15 years, that deep involvement of the economy, of the government, I should say, in its different forms, in the Communist Party state, in all sectors of the Chinese economy. And this goes together with a highly authoritarian view of politics, of national politics, and how China should be behaving vis-a-vis other countries. So the economic liberalization that happened in China in the 1980s was always very limited. And it really came to an end, that limited liberalization came to an end, I would argue, from about 2008 onwards, when the party, the Communist Party and its leadership shifted away from this very limited liberalization towards a much more state-centric view of the economy. And that fits very well with the Communist Party's authoritarian view of the world, but also a long history in China of authoritarian forms of highly centralized government. In America, it's different. In the sense that we have, we have sort of a market economy that exists, but that is also, at least in the founding period and from the, further onwards, this was always understood as going together with a view of America as a commercial republic. As a commercial republic, and a commercial republic is a republic in which we have republican forms of government, in which we have republican virtues, but also a sense that. Commerce is part of what makes us Americans. What makes Americans distinct uh, is the texts and documents and debates of the founding period. And if you look at these texts, documents, and debates, what you quickly discover is that the founders, for the most part, had a vision of America as a society in which commerce would play. The defining role which is very different from an aristocratic society it's also different from the type of militaristic Republic that the that the Roman Republic became uh, certainly much early, much much before the period of Caesar and Caesar Augustus so those are some of the big differences between China and America today we have a relatively free economy China has, a mostly centralized, state-centric economy. The moral outlook that goes along with the Chinese outlook in terms of economics is one of top-down, centralized authoritarianism. In America, the idea of a market economy goes hand-in-hand with the idea of this this Republican virtue and Republican forms of government in which commerce is seen as really essentially giving us very clear markers of what makes us Americans. So what we're seeing, of course, in many respects, is now competition, competition around the world between the Chinese model and the American model.
0: Okay, so Chinese, or sorry, economic competition in America has faced a lot of flack recently. Can you speak to that and how it, how it might affect us in the future? Are
1: you hopeful? Yes. Well, there's a a number of things to say about competition in America. One is that uh, it's it's declining. That's pretty clear from looking at most economic indices that measure American competitiveness against other economies. So if you look at things like the Heritage Heritage Foundation Index of Economic Freedom, uh, competition is one of those things that has been in decline really since... um, I would say, the late 1990s, early 2000s. The competition has been in decline. Uh, The other part of the the puzzle, of course, is that we have increased competition coming from abroad. So while we have less domestic competition going on, we've had certainly since um, 2000, the year 2000, we've had more economic competition coming from Abroad, so that's a that's not a particularly healthy mixture. Declining domestic competition and increased competition from abroad, and when you have declining competition, you end up with things like lower productivity. You also end up with a much less flexible uh, economy, and that's not good in the long term for the United States. And one of the big challenges that America has is to how is how we revive competition in America. And really the only way to do that, at least domestically, is to deal with the problem of an excessive regulation, an excessively big state, and to do something about the government's excessive involvement in the economy. Because what what undermines competition is excessive regulation. Which so it follows that if we're going to deal with this problem and make the American economy much more competitive We need to do something about regulation. Uh, We need to do something about uh, entitlements. There's all sorts of very big problems facing the American economy right now that people on both sides of politics don't show a great deal of willingness to do much about. Now, at the state level, I would say, there are some very positive things that are being done in terms of enhancing competition. But at a national level, I think it's fair to say that policies really well going back 20 years have not been particularly conducive to to increasing the degree of competition that exists in the American economy. Now as I mentioned before, when you live in a competitive economy, there's a lot of pressure. You're constantly under pressure to perform, to do better than your competitors to um, to to continue to turn a profit in environments in which you find yourself competing against more and more people, but that's how growth occurs. That's how economic growth occurs. That's how we make our GDP bigger. That's how we encourage entrepreneurs to come into the marketplace and and produce new ideas and products and services that consumers want. So it's not the, the dealing, knowing how to deal with. The problem of declining competition is not hard. We know the reasons why we have declining competition. But the political will to deal with the problem is not quite there.
0: Interesting. Why does the welfare state over private interest fall short morally as a model?
1: Well, I think it's important to keep in mind that the welfare state, for one thing, consumes... Uh, the majority of government spending in the economy. So, and it's only grown. It's only grown uh, really since the nineteen thirties. It became even bigger in the nineteen sixties with Lyndon Johnson's Great Society programs. And you know, there were some welfare reforms in the nineteen nineties, but they had they had important positive effects. But most of those have been wound back uh, as a consequence of successive administrations. Uh, uh essentially trying to find ways to bring back welfare programs that had been significantly reduced so we we'll, we know that big welfare states have very negative effects on things like economic growth because so much of gdp is being spent in 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 basically providing people with things but it's not being put to economically productive uses but there's also a cultural and moral problem with the welfare state in the sense that it increases dependency, dependency of individuals, families, communities on the state. And dependency is is not something that we should be encouraging. Now, we're all dependent upon other people. We're all social beings. There's no such thing as the this mythical rugged individualist who has no social ties with anyone else. But the the problem with the welfare state is that it tends to crowd out all those institutions of civil society that once upon a time provided most of the communal and associative bonds that not only socialized Americans but also brought them together in very productive creative and often ingenious ways. Alexis de Tocqueville, when he came to the United States in the 1830s, noticed this straight away about Americans. He, he noticed the, what he called the absence of the state from everyday life. And he noticed that Americans would deal with social problems, cultural problems, moral problems, through the art of, the, of free association, by coming together in different groups and different communities to deal with problems when they emerge, and at the level of society which they're best dealt with. Welfare states, by virtue of consuming so much of GDP, and thereby taking away people's private resources to deal with problems, but also making it harder and harder for civil society to function, undermines the ways in which Americans have dealt with any number of social problems in a way that doesn't require massive intervention into the economy. And so that's another reason, I think, why we need to have a serious debate about the effects of the welfare state upon the moral culture of Americans. To the extent that the welfare state is corroding Americans' willingness and ability to engage in free association to fix social problems under their own volition, it's a seriously retrograde step, uh, the welfare state, on who we are who we are meant to be as Americans.
0: Amazing. So Alexis de Tocqueville also talked about the spirit of enterprise that he saw in Americans. How, how could we reclaim this possibly?
1: Well, the good news is that America is still the world's most entrepreneurial country. We have the highest rates of entrepreneurship in the world. So that's a good thing. The bad news is that that's because... Other countries have become even less entrepreneurial. So it's not necessarily the case that we're becoming more entrepreneurial. It's because other countries have become even less entrepreneurial. So then we have to ask ourselves, how do we revive entrepreneurship in America? How do we make this spirit of enterprise that you just mentioned alive again? How do we how do we make it part of everything that Americans do in economic life? Well, there's a number of things. One is, as I mentioned before, we have a serious problem of regulation, over-regulation. Regulation is the number one thing that keeps entrepreneurs from getting into the marketplace because regulation makes it so much harder to start a business, to get um, to get a patent, to, to establish the types of things that you need if you're going to start a business. The second thing we need to do is to make capital much more freely available. And by that, I don't mean the federal government intervening and, and engaging in things, uh, sort of providing capital to businesses, whether it's through things like the import-export bank or the Small Business Administration, because government is very bad at determining what entrepreneurial enterprises are likely to be successful. What we do need is a revival and expansion of our financial system's ability to funnel capital to private entrepreneurs, because entrepreneurs will tell you that one of their biggest problems in starting a business or an entre- enterprise is lack of capital, lack of access to capital. Thirdly, we need more immigrants. Uh, Americans are not having enough children, and that's a problem in terms of entrepreneurship in the future, because it simply means there'll be less people around. The less people around you have, the less entrepreneurs you have. We need immigration, therefore, to make up the difference, and that's not least because entrepreneurs, I'm sorry, immigrants, when they come to America, they are incredibly entrepreneurial. They start something like 25% of new enterprises, which is much higher than their actual numerical uh, base in the United States. Something like one out of uh, every four businesses started in America over the past four years has had at least one immigrant as a co-founder of that enterprise. So immigrants, when they move, You know, the very fact that they're willing to get up and leave their country and move somewhere else tells you that they're willing to take risks, that they're willing to be creative, they're willing to do things that a lot of other people are not willing to do. And all those things I just mentioned about them tend to lend themselves to entrepreneurial enterprises. Now, the one caveat I would add to all that is that if you're going to have migrants coming into the country because you think and you know that they're likely to boost entrepreneurship, it has to happen legally. It has to happen legally. One of the problems we have in America in terms of immigration is that it's very hard to come to the United States legally, and it's very easy to come to the United States illegally. And that's the exact opposite of how it should be. So when I say we need more immigrants, what I mean is we need to make it easier for them to come here legally and that's not what, is not what is happening now. We have a situation where it's incredibly hard to, become, to come to the United States legally and incredibly easy to come here illegally. It's possibly the most dysfunctional set of immigration circumstances that you could have. And it undermines the ability of migrants to contribute in the way that they do to entrepreneurship in America.
0: What do you think the future of the American economy is then? Are you hopeful for it, or do you think it looks pretty grim?
1: Well, it's very easy to get pessimistic, right, because you only have to look around and see that the federal government is consuming an enormous amount of um, GDP. Uh, You can look and see declining competitiveness. You can see things like inflation sweeping its way through the American economy. You can see large numbers of Americans now regard the entitlements programs and the welfare state is just normal, That's the way things should be. There's also a considerable number of younger Americans who are interested in things like social democracy and socialism as possible ways forward. So it's very easy to be pessimistic. But on the other hand, uh, I tend to be more of an optimist. And the reason I say that is because America has shown in its history a capacity to change itself, to reset itself, to put itself back on the right path. And invariably, that has involved the process of going back, looking at the founding, looking at the founding texts, documents, and debates to get a sense of what the founders had in mind when they conceived the idea of America. And when you go back and look at those documents and texts and debates, what you quickly discover is that the founders wanted America to be a commercial republic, and that's the source of our identity. We're not meant to be a European social democracy. That's not who we are. We're meant to be a commercial republic, even if large numbers of of Americans don't know that. And let's keep in mind, why do people come to America? They generally come because they're looking for opportunity. They're looking for the capacity and opportunity to do things economically that they can't do, in many cases, in their native countries. So my sense is is that as long as we keep our bearings in the founding, as long as we're willing to go back and think through what the founders said about economic life, the role of government in the economy, and the importance of being a commercial society, then there's definitely hope.
0: Thank you so much for this discussion. I, f- I found it absolutely fascinating. Our guest has been Thank Sam. you very
1: much. I'm glad to be on.
0: Thanks. Our guest has been Samuel Gregg, and I'm Alexandra Comis on the Radio Free Hills Hour.